Welcome to Single Serving Cinema with Tim and Tay, a podcast that looks at one critical scene in a movie every other week. We explore how the scene is constructed, what the scene achieves, and what it can tell us about the movie as a whole. I'm Tim. And I'm Tay. How's it going, movie fans? Uh, really excited to get to this episode today. Um, it's rare that we get to traverse into this superhero terrain, so uh, really excited to get to that. Um, but how you been uh, lately, Tim? I know I've seen you way too much lately, it seems, so... yeah. Don't really been, feel the need to catch up with you, but yeah, you've been doing a lot of traveling, but I've also uh, gotten to see you plenty. Um, been doing okay. I mean, we today while we're recording, we've been hit with a snowstorm after a very sort of balmy February, which is yeah, a, no which kidding. Is a shame. Uh, you're like fans or listeners, you're listening to this in March, but we're recording this a little bit early. Um, so I'm a little bit bummed by the snow, but otherwise been good. Uh, I'd say the highlight recently was you and I and a friend of ours went to catch um, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, brought back to the movie theater. Yeah, that was such a, you know, I I expected it to be a really good experience just going back and seeing a movie that I grew up watching on a big screen. But it was actually Mm -hmm. far, it's far surpassed my expectations uh, in terms of just uh, how wonderful that movie is in general terms, but also just how much the big screen experience played in my enjoyment of it. Um, and I had a couple other friends who got to see it in other cities too. And, uh, everyone kind of said the same thing I noticed specifically about this re-release. Yeah. So this is, this is Ang Lee's 2000 martial arts epic. That was a, was a big deal, like a big cultural touch point. I think in the West, uh, did very well critically and financially. And I, you know, I was at the right age where I just, it was like a, a DVD I'd borrow from the library a lot and I'd just watch the fight scenes over and over and really get into them and sort of break them down and try to figure out what was happening and get a better awareness of the things that move a little bit too fast for your eye to uh, consciously take in for your brain. With that DVD play of yours that goes frame by frame? Yeah, yeah. This is... Well, actually, so interestingly enough, like Crouching Tiger and then the sequel to the movie that we were talking about today are two of them were like... Yeah, I was doing frame by frame analysis on the old DVD player uh, in the basement as a as a ten year old, eleven year old. Um, no, I do. I like it's just a it's a beautiful movie, and to be able to see it on such a big screen, and to be able to experience the way that like it's so expertly shot, and obviously the the fight choreography is so balletic and and beautiful and 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 sort of vicious when it needs to be. And then I think one of the things that really stood out to me was um, the sound design is very important to that movie and just masterfully produced. Yeah, I think they the sound design sets its rules up so well. And mm-hmm. when you have such consistency, it really leads to this, um, I don't know, this persistent worldview that you kind of take on as a viewer when you watch a movie that mm-hmm. does it so well. Another one I can think of off the top of my head was A Quiet Place. Kind of trains yeah. you to be like, oh, this is the tolerable level of volume use of score when they when they chose to use it was fantastic but the sound mix when they chose to be silent was fantastic yeah no it was a great experience and as always we recommend keep an eye out on your local theaters and things like that big chains like this was for canadians we went to a cineplex showing of it and cineplex is better than i would have expected before i actually put in the work and did some research about um rescreening classics and things like that and some of them are like you know they'll rescreen casablanca and gone with the wind and right. singing in the, the rain which the are classics. a little bit obvious if undeniably great right i really look forward to catching stuff like lawrence of arabia on a big screen when i can and you can expect that to come back crouching tiger which again 
uh, as you noted, uh, Tay, it is a 2000 movie, so I'm not really sure what the call is to bring it back to the theaters here in 2023, what kind of anniversary we're looking at. But yeah, I mean, in, if you're in the States, I, I think you guys have even more options than we do in terms of theaters that are sort of honoring classics and bringing things back on their 5, 10, 20, 25 year anniversaries. And then there's there's lots of small theaters too, so so keep an eye out. We'd we'd highly recommend it. Yeah, I also got to head up to Toronto this week uh, to see Badlands, Terrence Malick's uh, '70s film. Uh, quite a quite a masterpiece, I gotta say. I had never you, seen you it hadn't before. Seen this one, right? No, um, I'm yeah. pretty green on Malick films in general, to be Me honest. Bit, but uh, wow, that that it was so much fun. It was a uh, much different than I expected, based on the Malick that I have seen. So mm-hmm. um, it's not your typical kind of Terrence Malick artistic take. It's definitely more of a genre film. Very Bonnie and Clyde meets early Tarantino style stuff. Um, really ahead of its time, I got to say. And just a treat to see it on a big screen. So go, just going back to that initial point here, like when you get mm-hmm. a chance to see these kind of classics on a big screen, especially when you get the old school movie theater, the red velvet seats and stuff like that, it's uh, yeah. quite a treat. And that was that was projected from celluloid, right? Uh, I or actually no, no, I don't think so. I think it was a hmm. it was a four K like re release, oh, or okay. it was yeah. it was definitely high res, um, yeah. but really old theater that kind of added yeah. to the experience. And the tickets were a decent price; I think under fifteen bucks. So not bad. I uh, yeah, I can't really top Badlands because the other movie I went to see this week was the new Ant Man, which. Um, I mean, it had some charming, weird ideas, weirder than you would expect for so controlled an environment as the MCU. Um, but, you know, I, I I found it a little unfortunate. It did not look great. It was very dark. Um, it had that issue that I didn't expect it to have anymore. Cause, so it was primarily being shown in 3D. And I used to be not into 3D at all because it was a lot of movies that weren't produced to be in 3d that then were after the fact ported to a 3d setting where they just yeah. sort of pick a foreground and a background that was a and bad that era porting process doesn't do the image any favors it usually makes it darker it usually muddies motion or blurs it and can throw off a lot of good work that the cinematographer was doing whether no matter what type of movie you're talking about in the modern in this era i really like 3d because it's not as common which means almost always the filmmaker had it in mind it was intentional if you're going to do 3d now it's the plan yeah it still is a gimmick but it's not like what your movie rides or dies on mm-hmm. no and like you know and uh, it's a little unfair to peyton reed and ant-man 3 to compare them to james cameron but like you see a james you see an avatar movie in 3d it's well used 3d it enhances the way the story's being told and it's well done i was hoping for something good but this really felt like you know the late aughts era 3d where they just sort of slapped it on afterwards everything was underexposed you're in the quantum realm which is inherently a very interesting place to be that could be very visually magnificent and i honestly just couldn't see a ton of it um, which you'd think which would was, be kind of the point of a movie called quantum mania you you really would because like otherwise if if that's what it's going to be like just show me paul rudd running around san francisco like that it's a lot more charming i don't need to go to the quantum realm if i can't see anything so that's my little tirade. There, again, there are some things, there are some choices that they made that I did not expect them to be allowed to make. 
Um, not the kind of things you get used to in the MCU. So that those were neat, but uh, a real mixed bag and by no means uh, a, a, what I expect uh, you had from Badlands. That's how it goes. <laughs> Maybe a different kind of viewing experience altogether. But uh, I will say that if you're going to use 3D for any kind of film movie franchise that's actively going, Ant-Man seems like an like a pretty good choice, right? To have a three have some you, good you 3D sequences. So. Um, yeah. But you know what? They just should have hired Edgar Wright and let him do what he wanted right out the gate. Should have, would have, could have. Again, all that said, I like Peyton Reed. But yeah. But I mean, with that, yeah, we're we're all caught up there. Let's get into the theme. Uh, it's March, and we're talking New York movies. Which wait, why did I make that decision? Why did I suggest that? Oh, uh, Scream Five, Six. Yeah, I is it New York? Whatever the Scream movie is right now. I think it's New York. Six. Scream Six is set is moved to Manhattan in the latest installment. So again, we're trying to line up our. Uh, our themes with something that's going on in the theaters that month. And uh, we went with this and there's also, I mean, there's a new Willem Dafoe movie that I think we talked about in the last episode. So we, we line up double here cause we're talking about Spider-Man, the 2002 installment by Sam Raimi that sort of kicked off the modern superhero era or at least sort of set a blueprint for it. And, uh, and it's very much a New York movie. Yeah. I think it's a great transition going from uh, Ant-Man at, which is, in my personal opinion, at the tail end of underwhelming Marvel franchises that are dwindling in return. Mm-hmm. And we go all the way back to the very beginning of where I think people began to realize this level of filmmaking was possible on a blockbuster level. This is a huge standout for me. I don't know if it has the same like high degree for you, but um, this is an all-time favorite slash classic uh, uh, in my repertoire. I will watch this movie pretty much any time. Yeah, I, I love this movie to death. Like, it, it was very easy for us to decide, like, listen, we're going to talk about Spider-Man for our pick. But also, I don't know about you, as soon as I, you know, uh, pulled up the movie to start taking notes, I realized that every scene has so much to talk about. The movie itself has such a gargantuan presence in the modern sort of film era and what it achieved that it's, it's, it's a bit of a challenge to pare it down. Like we could easily do four hours on this movie, uh, but we're going to try. I mean, you guys can see the episode if you're listening to it now, I'm assuming we stuck to our usual 110, 115, but we'll see what happens here. Yeah. I mean, we still got to get through like the top of the paperwork, right? Um, yeah. Are we going to talk about next episode's movie yet? Yeah. Well, I think, uh, depending on how, when this drops and how on top I am of the, uh, the sort of process that we do, you may have already voted on the New York movie listener vote. So what we did for that, cause there are hundreds of New York movies and there are a couple directors that are really associated with New York movies. And we didn't want to bother sort of digging into Scorsese or Spike Lee or anyone like that. I mean, we're never going to dig into Woody Allen. Uh, so that doesn't really matter. Stop asking. Yeah. <laughs> Stop asking everybody. It's all the emails we get or people asking about doing Woody Allen. We don't care. Um, no, uh, we went with New York movies that don't aren't really related to a director who we'd probably dig into at another time anyway. So the options we were going with was Dog Day Afternoon, Warriors, Men in Black, and When Harry Met Sally. And I mean, looking ahead to it, it feels to me like it's going to be a fight between Men in Black and When Harry Met Sally, but Dog Day Afternoon is going to have its proponents in our audience too. It'll have its day. 
<laughs> it really will. And Warriors, while I love it, it's a it's a charming genre B pulp movie. Uh, I don't think it it stands a chance against the others. But yeah, for all you cultists you out there, um, yeah. I hope you guys voted hard and strong. If this episode is coming out post vote. Yeah, I mean, if we're going to do Warriors, that, that sounds good to me, but uh, I think it's more likely we get either Men in Black, which I I love to death just about as much as Spider-Man, or uh, we, we do our first rom-com with When Harry Met Sally, either of which would be fun. Yeah, when you brought up this theme of New York movies for the month, I kind of felt it came out of left field, but it's also just, it's fun. And uh, when we started putting mm-hmm. together a list of potential movies uh, that we would do this month, the list was endless we had so many movies that we wanted to squeeze in and um mm-hmm. like tim said we'll we'll find other ways to get some of those uh movies and especially the scorseses and the spike lees which both of whom are filmmakers we really want to discuss absolutely so without further ado let's dig into it uh so spider-man from uh from 2002 if somehow you do not know the premise of spider-man uh, I'm here to help you out. Uh, when unpopular and unassuming high schooler Peter Parker is bitten by a radioactive spider, he gains miraculous powers that soon throw his life into disarray. Starring Tobey Maguire and Kirsten Dunst and directed by Sam Raimi, Spider-Man hit theaters May 3rd, 2002. Uh, it had a a not insubstantial budget of $139 million and uh, made a reported $825 million. Uh, which ain't too shabby. Spawned a, spawned a trilogy and, again, arguably an entire era of uh, of cinema. One note I did want to make is there may be some people uh, listening who are saying, well, listen, Spider-Man came out in 2002. What about X-Men? It came out in 2000. I actually would argue that X-Men is not as influential on modern superhero cinema and modern cinema itself because X-Men was actively embarrassed by its source material. And Spider-Man is enthusiastic about it, right? This is a drippingly earnest and sincere movie, whereas X-Men, it's all, you know, they're wearing black leather. They're making jokes about yellow spandex. It had to be cool. It was far more akin to, I think, like Blade and the other, like Daredevil, the other uh, sort of of turn-of-the-century superhero products, which were we can get a cheap IP that is recognizable by buying the rights to this comic book. And then we have to strip it of everything that makes it feel like a comic book. And uh, Sam Raimi went in the completely different direction. Yeah. Which honestly feels like just the more natural way of going about it. I think to the nineties Batman films, like by Schumacher um, really like the cartoony flamboyancy of them Mm -hmm. really was a product of translating something from a comic to a film. Uh, and I really kind of, I liked that vibe because it really felt like you're making a comic book movie. What we're seeing... It verges on, on, on like camp. Yeah. There's something yes. very charming about it when you look back now. Everyone, it's very like, everyone kind of built like a Greek god and the city doesn't make any sense. And it's kind of overtly homoerotic. Like, I think I think Schumacher was doing a lot of very interesting things with this extremely heightened reality of his Batman movies. Yeah. Um, and... I was actually thinking about that, like those movies a lot watching Spider-Man this time around, because there's some, there are some set pieces that look almost identical to like Schumacher's Batman. The first time we see Peter fight a a bad guy where he's chasing down the guy who killed his uncle. And Mm. in that setting, it looks straight out of Schumacher's Batman. There's like some, some really colorful lighting playing in the background. Um, It looks very industrial. Yeah. Very, uh, kind of spotlights. Yep. Yeah. 
Um, but we, before we move on any further, I, we should say, obviously, I think the primary tagline for this, which everyone should know, say it with us. With, with great, great power comes great responsibility. You know, it's right there. Everyone knows that Spider-Man had a lot of presence, obviously, in the cultural canon before the movie hit, which uh, definitely led to a lot of its success. And uh, that's sort of like his probably most iconic mantra and one, one of the most iconic in, in all of uh, sort of comic canon. Um but I did want to also note uh, in the undoubtedly like very well-funded multi-year marketing campaign for this movie, they came up with some other uh, real doozies of taglines that you can find this in IMDb. Two of which I picked out here. The first one, um, the first one is on May third, the entire world will connect to the web, which is, I mean, I don't know how you get Yikes. more of a turn of the millennium tagline there. Wow. And uh, next summer, one hero will take you for the ultimate spin. Okay. And you can only guess what words are capitalized and what words aren't. It's just, from from an editor's standpoint, it's an absolute mess. Oh, yeah. You got ultimate spin capitalized. Yeah. Wow. Because it's a proper noun. Right. Right. Yeah, of course. And like, and I think you're really like, you're putting a lot of weight on the word spin there because they're, they're going for like a spider spins a web. But he's not taking you for a web that he spun. He's taking you for a spin like you take someone for, for a spin in a car. It's like, it's, 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 um, it's messy, right? I think I, I could have spent a while in the writer's room on this one, sort of paring it down. Well, you know what? I like that you brought both these up because both of these connect to points that I'm going to make later about Spider-Man mm-hmm. as, a, as a whole movie. Um, before we get yeah. too far away from the New York theme, though, I think we should touch on kind of what makes this movie so distinctly representative of new york city yeah so it came out eight months after uh 9-11 and uh the attack on the twin towers um it was marketed with the twin towers appearing in a lot of the marketing and being featured actually we'll link it in the in the show notes something tay you sent to me today but i'd seen before uh it'd just been a while an actual uh like general sort of teaser for the movie where bank robbers who are escaping from a heist in a helicopter get caught on a web in between the uh the world trade center towers yeah isn't that crazy that's a cr- i just yeah. couldn't believe that teaser existed i i thought it was fake at first mm-hmm. i mean like even outside of where it stands in terms of the, the you know the the attack of 9-11 and things like that it is like the the way it's produced is so indicative of the time in which it came out that early thousands it kind of like has like a break beat it's kind of like that you wouldn't steal a car commercial yeah the way it's edited and shot like it's it, it kind of sounds like the matrix you know? or like tony scott that kind of era of like absolutely really i don't even know how to i've never been able to quite term the way that tony scott did his editing it's uh it's, it's yeah, very I punk mean, rock it's, it's just <laughs> It, yeah it's kind of punk rock but it's not like danny boyle either like it's, no it's the kind of thing where you're like if you show me something i've never seen before and you're like did tony scott edit that or not like you know you can you can feel it yeah his his editing kind of like his shots like kind of bleed into one another and he uses like pretty surrealist effects um all indicative mm-hmm. of this late 90s early 2000s period that we're talking about and yeah. like tim said the advertising for this like spanned like years before the movie came out there was teasers coming out for this like, a, at least a year and a half before the movie even was out um the dvd copy that i have has i think 15 tv spots all different yeah man it was a huge investment in getting this movie 
out there and known and obviously like they're already trying to represent it as a distinctly new york movie which is why the the twin towers were in so much of the press and the promos for it and then after the attack obviously they had to do some editing they removed the towers from shots and from posters and things like that there there were posters that you can still find original copies of online where the towers are reflected sort of in like his spider goggles that are in his mask and my understanding is that like the the scene the scene that that takes place uh, in the third act where uh, Spider-Man's being a, has to choose between saving a, a a carriage of children and Mary Jane and Goblin is attacking him and then a bunch of New Yorkers on the bridge sort of come out in 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 force and start attacking Goblin was shot after 9/11. They sort of recontextualize that part of the scene. Come on up here, dumb guy. I got a little something for you. Leave Spider-Man alone. You got a pick on a guy trying to save a bunch of kids. Oh, yeah, I got something for your ass. You miss Spider. You miss. You mess with one of us, you mess with all of us. I'll have to do a little bit more research to determine if that's actually true, but it feels so palpable as a response to 9-11 that, like, it's now kind of hack to say it, but, like, this is one of the first movies that made New York a character. Right. Um, Almost out of necessity in terms of, like, it's it's, it's wounded spirit. Right. Like, the post-9-11 New York. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, 70s New York is is a character in a number of ways, but the idea that, like, you'd have a mob show up and they're like, we're New Yorkers. You don't have to know anything else about us. Yeah, right? and, and even the way that the uh, authorities are represented, the, whether it's the fire department or the police, def- uh, the police force in the film, everyone is kind of heroic. Everyone is doing their job. Mm-hmm. There's no poor representation of police officers or... In, their, in the minimal scenes with firefighters, they seem to be doing the right things too. And working together, there's like this cohesion that they form with Spider-Man, even though it's like they've been told to take him in, they let him go into the fire in that one scene. There's just all this mm-hmm. um, allusion to the fact that you, you, New York is united as one. Yeah. Yeah, like Spidey can be at odds with the police, uh, you know, when he people are calling for his arrest after they, they think that he had attacked J. Jonah Jameson. But there's this continued, like, sort of respect, right? Like, it's never, like, no one's smearing the cops. And even the cops themselves aren't acting reprehensibly at any point. Yes. You know? Yeah. I think it's very careful about how it presents these um, these systems at play in New York and these systems that were so important during the attack. So, I mean, yeah, distinctly New York for that reason. Uh, and and a great movie to dig into, but it's just so much to actually get to. Yeah, all, in also indicative of like just the post nine eleven world view was is just the persistence that uh, Jameson has to as like the head of the Daily Bugle to kind of create an opposition, I guess to put it more simply. Mm-hmm. And that's like quite indicative of those times. Um, and then, you know, you have the really specific stuff, like all the New York iconography, you have like the very distinct vignettes at the beginning, which almost seem not like they weren't shot by a Hollywood film. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's got like that really street camera perspective. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like I think, and I mean, I say this is someone who is not familiar with New York in person. I don't know. I think you've been, Taylor? Yeah, I've been actually a couple times. Not for a long time, yeah. though. When I was a, when I was pretty young, I went. But it does it does feel like they, they give you some hints of sort of the, the idea of being a person who lives, like, 
you know, he lives outside of the city, but he's got to travel in. Him and MJ both want to move into the city when they graduate. You take the bus to get there. He has to take two buses and a cab to be in her neighborhood on Manhattan, things like that. And, of course, like the mugging, the crime, weirdos in the subway, you know, guys with the accent yelling from the bridge. There's a lot of that sort of iconography that even, you know, Canadians ourselves, but the global audience itself uh, could could recognize and, and get their hooks into. All of it, I think, just kind of forms really nicely behind this idea of like the United New York that was really needed in this time for America. And I think it's a huge contributing factor to why this movie was so financially successful. Not only the interest in New York City, but the need for a hero. Mm-hmm. And there, there's a there is a I wouldn't say it's not subtle, but like it's it rides a real fine line in terms of the Americana in this. Like you'll have Spider-Man like land on an American flagpole. Right. And they, they do a lot of like backing up his image with an American flag. Obviously, it's the same colors, you know, things like that. Like so there, there's there's something distinctly American about Spider-Man without him being overtly patriotic. You know, he's not your Captain America or or even like a captain of industry, like like Iron Man, things like that. But there is something, you know, he's a New York kid. He's born and born and bred and raised there and, and he loves his city even when it hates him. Yeah. And maybe we can kind of jump into the character of Spider-Man a bit here now, because I think part of what makes this movie great um, and I'm, I'm trying my best not to do comparables to other superheroes and other even Spider-Man films. But why this movie stands out to me as one of the best in the genre is because of the human like connection to this character. I mean, there's a true underdog story in Peter Parker uh, that we kind of actually get the chance to witness in this movie, unlike later versions of Spider-Man, which kind of skipped the Uncle Ben, skipped the bullying in school. Um, mm-hmm. This this is some a character that we know pretty thoroughly before he becomes Spider-Man, and we have countless reasons to empathize with him um yeah whether it's his inability to communicate with people who he wants to communicate with like mary jane or just his like parental situation both his parent he lost both his parents very young and he lives with his aunt and uncle um and i like that they kind of the deployment of information early in this movie is really strong they introduce characters in a really effective way um but peter parker is built up from super underdog and his rise to being like a flawed hero is really strong it, it makes for a very compelling arc in this film yeah i mean I mean, fundamentally this movie is like an extremely intentional coming and coming of age story right every single character uh with like or primary character i guess you'd say so spider-man green goblin harry mj are really invested in this idea of identity who are you for the younger people, it's who are you going to become? What are you right. going to be? And for, for Norman, though, you know, he his personality splits. Like, there's a lot of play of identity and considering what you are and what you do and what you, as you become something, as you discover things about yourself, what right that gives you uh, to do things or to seek things or what duty that imposes upon you. And for him, and I think the supernatural factors are just, metaphoric for like what actually is going on in his adult life from a business perspective and like the stresses of his position he loses the company that is his name right like this is not it's a comic book it's not subtle stuff and it doesn't have to be subtle stuff 
but his entire identity is wrapped up in his his success in business and then his business is failing at the beginning of this so he takes matters into his own hands and becomes a monster to save his business and then his business is ripped out of his hands by board members and he turns them into skeletons right yeah like, in in a great <laughs> evil dead kind of style moment i really like that yeah i was making an ongoing list of like the things sorry for all that paper fully there um i was making a list of the sort of things in this that are distinctly raimi and not so much spider-man and yeah like turning board members into skeletons there's a couple transitions in this movie one of which we'll talk about in our scene but another one where Green Goblin blows up, like murders his competition, and the flames turn into the graduation caps in the air. Yeah. <laughs> which is like pretty ghoulish, yeah. all things considered. It's like all these and kids, I mean, yeah, like, like, it's like the canned like celebration audio too. Yeah. And like, yeah, like Norman's transformation, there's like a half second shot where Willem Dafoe clearly has like these white contacts in, uh, which is extremely evil dead, like... Big tangent here, but uh, yeah, no, it's Norm, Norman, all of them. It's just a matter of figuring out who you are, right? And there's a very clear arc to Peter's story where he gets these powers and the power like and this is this is probably like the most fundamental Marvel thing is that powers will not make your life better. All of your problems are still going to be there because you cannot solve them with your powers. And if you do, you're a villain. So Osborne tries to solve his problems by killing people by being more powerful and it turns him into a villain and, and leads to his downfall. Peter uh, has two instances where he tries to solve his problems with his powers or lack thereof. And that's when he fights back against his bully Flash played by Joe Manganiello. Uh, phenomenal performance. I love the sequence where he fights him and you see a real rush of the power fantasy on Tobey Maguire's face. You realize he, he's stronger than, than anyone who's been picking on him. And then in a following scene, he decides not to act, even though he has the power to do the right thing and to stop someone from doing a bad thing. And the result is his father figure is murdered. Yeah. Forever gone. And, you know, Marvel's never been very kind to their heroes. They have to suffer to make compelling stories. And I'm not sure that anyone's ever suffered as, as much as Spider-Man. He's got a real bummer of a life. Uh, his sort of core tenet is that it's it's really difficult to be Spider-Man, but it's the right thing to do. Yeah, to my earlier point, I think what separates Spider-Man from the rest is that, like, in, as far as the movies go, not the comics or the origin stories, but the movies, um, we get to witness a lot from Peter's perspective and see what actually is, like, affecting his life mm -hmm. and making him feel so vulnerable and down and feel the need to, like, be more than yourself. And I think mm -hmm. that's all those things are very relatable and it's what separates him from so many of the other superheroes. No, I mean, the other thing I really like about this sort of portrayal and what Raimi does and what Tobey Maguire does is I think that like they make Peter Parker truly pitiful in a way that no one else has had the guts to do so. Exactly. Like this guy is so dorky and so sincere and like wet eyed that like I think audiences, even though the movie did very well, I think you have a hard time even seeing yourself in his shoes because you're like, come on, man, can you just step up a little bit? Can you be a little bit smoother with MJ? Can you just like not be someone that's so easy to walk over? 
and you'll see like why why that'd be so difficult to do because in in like later iterations of spider-man peter parker's way cooler yeah and if he's not cool he's at least like he's got his circle of friends and he's he's confident like he's he's got a safe social space whether it's with friends or i mean the andrew garfield garfield ones he's truly just like a cool guy yeah, Which, like really cuts the legs out from underneath Spider-Man, I think. Those movies didn't even make sense from the beginning because he was the one cast as Peter Parker. So ultimately, like right away, your your whole premise is undercut because yeah. your your lead actor is way too handsome and charismatic to play Peter Parker. And I don't think Garfield yeah. has the ability to turn that off. Yeah, no, whereas like, you know, I really like Toby's performance as Spider-Man and particularly as Peter Parker, but like there are, you know, things that I just don't think you would see anymore where, you know, if he get he takes a hit and you hear him kind of like yelp or like squeal, right? Like he doesn't have these like masculine responses yeah, to it's, fights and things like that. He sounds like a kid. Drooling, being hit. He cries all the time in these movies, right? Like I, 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 I think it's really special. I just don't think it's something you're, you're going to see that often anymore. Um, it's it's not the archetype that I think they want to have your sort of power fantasy protagonist, the person that your audience is going to put the, them in. Um, and I, I really like it because it, it, it lines up really well with what is essentially an old Hollywood romance movie that's wrapped up in a comic book power morality tale. Yeah. Because again, the movie frames itself as this is not a story about me. It's not a story about spider-man it's not how i became who i it is about it but like that's not how pete frames it he says it's about this girl this like any story worth telling is all about a girl yeah and that right? whole opening sequence is shot like a rom-com with the na- opening mm-hmm. narration and the the bright sunlight pouring through the bus window on the mm-hmm. on the dream girl all these things kind of tie it to that kind of imagery and I think that that's a really clever uh, sleight of hand almost by Raimi mm-hmm. kind of disguising his movie yeah, as more well, than one just, thing. Yeah. I'd say like more than anything else, the reason I love this movie and I love the second one and I've grown to love the third one a lot more than I did when I originally saw it is that like they're it, the hearts on the sleeve. So, Raimi obviously loves what he's doing here and you can tell the cast is really into it. They're really bought in to how earnest this entire product is and how these characters are and the things that they say that sometimes like don't even line up with, I think like normal parlance or dialogue. Right. But it's just, it's very aching stuff. And I mean, so one of the stories that I heard in the research was that I guess Ramey was saying early in the production of this movie that he was like, okay, listen, we're going to have, um, you know, Spider-Man's costume, his iconography. We're not changing it from the comic books. It's going to be the red and the red and blue with the webbing on it. And he's like, we're going to have a score done by Danny Elfman. Um, one of the most famous composers ever. The guy who made the, made the sound of the Batman movies. And he's like, and it's going to be set in New York. And his argument was that with those three things alone, people will be sold. He's like, we're going to sell tickets no matter what. So we will be tempted to cut corners and to do less than we need to do. And he's like, I want you guys to go in the opposite direction. We have to earn the right to use Spider-Man's image, to use Danny Elfman's music, to use New York as a setting. We have to live up 
to that and not rest on our laurels and just allow the IP to, you know, bring in money and bring in fans. And that, like, I, I've told this story a lot in off the podcast because I, I constantly bring it up when, like, you know, again, we're trying not to rip on other things too much, but I'd say one of the best examples is um, one of those Star Wars Disney Plus TV shows, Obi-Wan, that I watched one episode and that entire show, you could tell the idea behind it is like, listen, people are going to show up. It's Obi-Wan. We don't have to work too hard on the script. We don't have to work too hard on the editing. It doesn't have to look that good. People are going to binge this entire thing in a day if they're a Star Wars fan just because the name on the on the front. Right, the studio complacency and, that comes with like just yeah, setting up unrealistic mm-hmm. uh, release dates and things like that. Yeah. Whereas with Raimi, I think you can tell that he cares and he was trying to do something special and I think he achieved it. Yeah, it's one of my biggest takeaways from Spider-Man and why this movie works as a superhero movie over others is that it has authorial vision and style that only comes from true mastery of direction and a studio actually allowing a director to have that kind of power and control and vision over a film Um, from how it looks to how the actors perform to the uh, hilarious zany style editing that you see in Raimi's movies you know it all comes together Mm -hmm. and and you said you saw the new Doctor Strange movie with that Raimi directed uh yes so yes, I did. so like yeah. comparatively like can you see the the producer stepping in on Raimi and that kind of production versus like early superhero saga i'd say there are definitely aspects where you feel like there's committee at at play here sort of like telling Raimi what he has to do i'd say the harder thing and the thing where you can feel Raimi being mitigated more is the weight of that universe's canon, right? It, his yes. movie had to fit in, had to had to tail off of a TV show that came out at the beginning of the pandemic, and it had to lead up to this other thing, and it had to remember that this character did this other thing in another movie, right? Um, there are things in that movie that are very cool, and they're so Raimi, and they're, they are just so charming uh, when they work, and they feel very heartening, and then there are things where you're like, this is like just some heavy nonsense that has to be in the movie because the movie is a part of this 15-year arc of the MCU. And that's kind of the unfortunate part, right? Like you got to essentially start from scratch here. And the freedom and the intention and the control and the vision is is palpable. It's why this movie holds up. Yeah, I guess studios didn't really know what kind of phase they were entering when spider-man initially came out so you're not exactly suffocating your director into like a product like the production studio's vision of a franchise yet because you don't have that yet well by all accounts they weren't planning on a second movie yeah. until they saw how this one did yeah right and then and and, and then like successful. you know as the story goes it's in the third one where they started making more creative uh it, like they where they started insisting more on how the story would be told and what had to be included in it which is why you have so many villains yeah that's one, apparently that's the point i was going to bring up that's what i had heard and i have only seen the third one once and i didn't like it but they just crammed way too many things into it and by all accounts that mm-hmm. was against Raimi's wishes which kind of yeah. fits based on how he directed the first two in a very concise manner um for the record we're not going to get into number two today but i think it's 
just as good if not better than the first one i think they're both amazing films um yeah i think i like the second one a little bit better yeah i think there's a pretty strong argument to be made that it's the greatest superhero movie that's ever been produced yeah i i would kind of agree um although i'm due for a rewatch it's been maybe a like a year Mm -hmm. or two (laughs) yeah always do for a rewatch um these these spider-man movies are fantastic and a lot of it does come back to raimi's vision and control like it's like you mentioned it earlier it really does take a full buy-in from everybody kind of seeing like and being motivated the right way is a big part of that by raimi but seeing the potential in a project like this and then actually buying in are two different things and for the actors to all kind of buy into the the cheesiness that comes with being in a raimi production it really bonds this movie together and makes it as strong like the strong product you see yeah i mean it's just you watch this movie and you can feel it there are you don't even have to love the story you don't have to be into the way that they sort of arc out the romance and things like that but i think it's just that thing that doesn't always occur where you can you you can tell that everyone was on board and they were they were engaged with what they were making and they weren't just producing a product um there is art to this and there's heart in it and uh i think i think it's just a it's a special thing that's becoming more and more of a relic yeah Um, it's that's it was it's always like a hard thing to come up with a term for but it's an intangible factor that some movies just have the movie magic and some don't uh this mm -hmm. is just one of those productions that every everything seemed to kind of hit my argument is always just when you have a director with this much control over everything your likelihood for that kind of magic to happen just increases it's not a guarantee it just allows things to kind of funnel through one brain which tends to help or hurt yeah if you you eliminate if you eliminate the chance for that sort of vision to be watered down by other creative influencers uh, on the process it's more likely to be unadulterated which with if it's then a good vision, a well-established and well-motivated and well-realized and executed vision, then it, it becomes something else entirely. You know, it becomes something really special. Well, yeah, it's this movie is so much more than just a, a script and a, a set of comic book characters. It's It took real vision to kind of come up with even, like everything from how this movie was marketed to how it ends up looking because I think they kind of go hand in hand. They had this idea that this was going to be a revolutionary visual effects film because it was going to be, it was going to perform crazy acrobatics that cameras can physically not even attain uh, the visuals for. So they knew in advance that this was going to change cinema. And I, I do think a number of the effects really hold up very well. Yeah. Um, the digital doubles, so basically when you have Spider-Man, it'll go from one shot that's clearly a stunt actor in the in the bodysuit or even Tobey Maguire, and then it'll cut and you'll have a, di- a fully CGI Spider-Man doing, doing something ac- acrobatic. I think it still works pretty well. The weight is sometimes a little off, but I also think there's something fantastical about it where you're like, all right, like Spider-Man has special powers. He can kind of be lighter, light as a feather, and he can bounce and jump around. So I, I still kind of buy it. The, the things that stood out to me this time, and this is entirely just due to my ongoing education from our our friends over at Corridor Crew. Um, I found the the most blatant CGI things that didn't work for me anymore were the explosions. They're so dark. You right, notice that? Like right. they don't they don't bloom at all. 
And one of like, I'd say like the top three things you learn if you watch any corridor crew videos are number one, explosions are super bright. You know, like obviously that, that should go without saying, but so often in terms of the way that they produce it in a frame, they have to turn down the brightness so it doesn't overload it or so you can see the hero's face as they're running away from it. The, the explosions, like all the highlights are turned down on the explosions in this movie and they really stood out to me this time. And then, I mean, otherwise, we, we have one CGI effect in uh, in the scene we're going to talk about today, but I, I can dig into how I feel about that when we get there. Okay. Um, well, we can get there in just but, um, a second. Uh, there's one other piece of VFX that I wanted to mention because I was listening to the commentary with VFX artist John, or I think he's the VFX supervisor, John Dykstra, um, and a couple cool. of the other VFX artists are on the commentary. It's just them. It's kind of interesting. I've never really seen a commentary yeah. like that. Um, but they were saying that they start like to kind of create models for, of the of New York City. They really wanted to have full models to kind of work within, so they used a process called photogrammetry, which is digitally creating large chunks of the city with uh, photographs and video. But mm-hmm. that didn't work because they couldn't get high enough resolution images of building textures. So they ended up having to turn to uh, conventional surveyors' instruments to get and like come up with other angles in advance so they basically had all the models built from this first process went back in with very high resolution photographs and this is one of the very early examples of texture mapping so they actually then were able to take those textures and map them with geometry onto the image or onto the 3d models they already had and mm-hmm. it was like one of the first examples of them figuring out how to do this um, it was very ahead of its time and of course for a production of this magnitude these are the kinds of things that you want them to be kind of setting the standard on. So uh, it's just kind of mm-hmm. cool seeing it come like, like hearing the background of that. Um, Cause I've heard about texture mapping quite a bit from listening to things like corridor crew, yeah. but hearing them talk mm-hmm. about it in a, in a retrospective in 2003 or whatever, they recorded the commentary is pretty funny. Absolutely. No, that, that, that's a really neat touch. And then, I mean the thing, and unfortunately it wasn't a part of this movie, but I know in the second movie, that Raimi really got into his sort of bag of tricks where, you know, if you think back to Evil Dead, he does a lot with like the camera being a first person sort of character moving around. And it was in the second movie where they developed a new rigging system for this web swinging cam. So through actual New York streets, they'd have this this camera being raised up and then swung down on this parabolic arc. Right. Um, which is it's just extremely cool. And that's and that I remember being a huge part of advertising campaigns for number two was like you were yeah. the POV of the camera swinging of, of Spider-Man sorry, swinging like down the this. street. Yeah. Yeah. Which is so clearly cool. what they wanted to do for this. But they needed a movie to get every to get their footing and to kind of figure out how to create some of these visuals in a standard way. And then, mm-hmm. you know, you get more advances. Yeah, I mean, you even go. with two hundred million dollars in budget, there's only so much you can do. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's just crazy how far film budgets have come because to think that this movie is made for, what was it, 135? Wow, this is like 180. 180 million? Or is it 100? Oh, sorry, 100, 139. No, you're right. Yeah, so like know. you have a movie made for $139 million now and you're not getting a product of this caliber or magnitude. Certainly not. Uh, so our scene today, Tay, are we talking about web swinging or explosions or 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 punching or anything like that? All the superhero things that you want, Tim, are in the rest of the movie. The scene okay. we're going to do today is <laughs> brace for it, everybody. 
another dinner scene. It's got fruitcake. It's got fruitcake. I picked up a fruitcake. Um, so we have a Thanksgiving dinner scene, uh, which might not be the first scene that stands out to you about Spider-Man, but there's a lot to get to that we're going to tie into some of the other themes we've already discussed. Um, this scene takes place from an hour 25 into the movie to an hour 29.50. So it's a five-minute scene, give or take a few seconds. Following a fight with the Green Goblin, Peter arrives late at Thanksgiving dinner where Harry, MJ, Norman, and Aunt May are already waiting. He has to sneak into his room to change clothes, um, which alerts everybody, but he evades detection. When he does eventually show up, uh, a cut on his wrist is revealed and Norman's suspicions arise. This scene is starring all of our main cast um, and that's kind of one of the reasons why we wanted to talk about it, but there's also a lot of thematic consequence to this scene. And by the end of it, we're left with a very different looking set of relationships, um, which is also all the reasons why we find this scene pretty fascinating. So Tim, what are your initial takeaways from yet another dinner scene on single serving cinema? Yeah. I mean, uh, it's a great sequence and I think it's, it's, Directed in a bit of a silly way that I really enjoy. And I mean, it's it's really more of a showcase for Willem Dafoe than it is anything else. You have the scene kicking off with the transition from uh, the burning building in which Green Goblin and Spider-Man just fought. No one says no to me! Uh, the flames sort of rise up over the frame. And, uh, and then they pull away and you have Norman in the elevator going up to his son's apartment for Thanksgiving dinner. He is sweating and mumbling to himself, and his eyes are rolled back. It's so much fun. All great directorial decisions, yeah. Yeah, like sometimes, you know, in some sequences, they literally have Norman talking to himself or talking to the Green Goblin mask. And in other times, I love that you just get these little sprinklings of character text, basically, uh, where Norman, you can see just sort of like this weird in-between state he's in. Because once he gets out of the elevator... He's super charming, right? Oh, Henry. I'm sorry I'm late. Work was murder. But he comes in and he says hi to Aunt May. He brought her a fruitcake. I picked up a fruitcake. He meets MJ for the first time and he's very suave. Who is this lovely young lady? Um, MJ, I'd like you to meet my father, Norman Osborne. Dad, this is Mary Jane Watson. Hi. How do you do? I've been looking forward to meeting you. Happy Thanksgiving, sir. But also, like, that facade sort of cracks a little bit as they go, too, right? Like, basically, as soon as everyone is distracted with something else, he start like, there's a very intentional shot, reverse shot, where he's, like, checking out MJ, and she can see him checking her out. Yeah, um, the very judgy look that he gives her. Mm-hmm. Um, no, like, it, it, it's a super interesting scene, and then it's just a classic comic book thing where you can... You can see this being in panels on a page where the villain figures out who the hero is, but the hero doesn't know that the villains figured that out yet. So there, you leave this sequence with this imbalance of of control and power, and you don't know, you don't know. Like it, it, and then I mean, it cuts directly to Norman talking to the Green Goblin mask and saying, "Like, listen, I know it's Peter. He's this great kid. How? Do, what do I do?" And uh, you know, Goblin tells him to go for the heart. Which we come to understand by the end of the scene that, like, I guess, like, we should know at the beginning of the scene, but we only come to know through the scene's revelations that Peter is not well equipped to handle something like this. He hasn't considered all the potential um, 
retaliations against him that could happen, including the fact that Goblin immediately attacks Aunt May. Finish it! Finish it! Oh, and then we'll eventually go after Mary Jane. Uh, mm-hmm. These are not yet things that have entered into Peter's uh, mindset about being Spider-Man because he's still this irresponsible, um, youthful... Um, he's still like irresponsible and he's still like new to this position as a superhero. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't all like come naturally to him. He doesn't thought of all the potential dangers yet. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's got the mask on from basically the first time he, he, he becomes the human spider for that wrestling match. But I like that. Yeah. There is no conversation at the start of the movie or internal monologue where he's like, well, I got to wear a mask to protect my identity and protect the people who are important to me. I think it's more that like he's a little embarrassed to be going to this wrestling competition to try to get money to get a card to impress MJ. And then the mask just sort of becomes a part of it and they don't have to interrogate it. But it's by the end of this movie where he's like, oh, Spider-Man's being Spider-Man is a duty and it's a curse. Um, I have to be Spider-Man and I cannot be close to MJ because I like I'll lose her. Right. She'll be she'll become something that can be held against me and she could get hurt. Yeah, and this is sort of like this is a very important lesson for a hero to learn. Well, gets launched in this scene. It's literally like the theme of Spider-Man, right? Great power, great responsibility, all mm-hmm. comes full circle. But it's through this dinner scene where kind of everything changes because we we have really neat and tidy relationships prior to this moment. Um, mm-hmm. Harry and Peter are on good terms. Um, Harry and his father are on amicable mm. terms i guess yeah in the sense that sure. things are even keeled um harry is stressing that his that mary jane isn't going to be good enough for his father um and that's that becomes very evident in this scene specifically um after some precursors leading up to this point but then where we really see the relationships crumble is just that like you already kind of pointed it out but the way that norman is so erratic and that he's walking this very thin tightrope um the facade's cracking all around him every time there's like a point of stress he's like losing it and Willem Dafoe is such a rare talent in this regard and his ability to convey like a sense of like craze or um lack of uh lack of control Mm -hmm. um his ability to do this is uncanny and in this scene he really becomes unhinged Mm. Well, I mean, there, there's some odd sort of things where when you really look at the scene about what they're trying to get at in the general state of Norman's mind, because even so that, you know, like he comes in and he meets MJ and then Spider-Man swings back uh, to the apartment, uh, to the upper floor of this apartment, and they hear him sort of land on the wall and they sort of just take it as like, oh, that's weird. I didn't know he was here. And there's this weird choice where they all go upstairs. Yeah right to like investigate but norman is first and there's this very paranoid feeling because it's not like there i don't think there's any suggestion at that point that he thinks peter is spider-man yeah exactly but he's still very insistent on like well let's go see what's going on up there and like he goes in he's like bit of a slob isn't he all brilliant men are as he's walking away uh he gets this hint that someone may still be in the room and like his eyes narrow in a very, I mean, a very comic booky, very arch way. And he turns around and he, he takes another look. And then 
And then, yeah, but like, then he goes back downstairs and his character sort of levels again. Peter comes through the door. He gives him a really warm handshake because he's Norman Osborn himself is such a big fan of Peter because he's this smart, motivated kid uh, who has nothing that his son has. Um, a big point. And then, yeah. yeah, but then like, you know, Aunt May strikes him. Norman. And he gets a little bit unhinged again. Then when he realizes that Peter is Spider-Man, he really like goes unhinged. How did you say that happened? Bike messenger. And then almost finds like a fake reason to like put a button on the scene is just by insulting Mary Jane and uh, and telling his son to just like, you know, use her and, and get rid of her. Uh, but he does a lot. There's a lot like it's a big up and down. There's a real, real uh, 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 transitive sort of sort of way that that uh, Willem Dafoe approaches this he does a lot of different things that are all sort of on the spectrum of being a maniac being paranoid being power hungry things like that there, there seems to be some kind of like intentionality or, or bluntness to Raimi's choice to kind of make Norman really appear villainous in the scene where they they give him the knives and Aunt May's like will you do the honors and he's like sharpening them and yeah. they make him look all vicious and crazy and then yeah just all the decisions about how how they present him is almost like a cartoon or like a comic book in the sense like mm -hmm. they really visually make him look like the villain yeah because he's, he's so much more even keeled like i think the last couple times him and peter interact right like he meets him at the museum and he's you know i'm something of a scientist myself yada 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 he sees him at graduation and he's like very proud father to him um, and sees him at the apartment an earlier time. He sort of commends him on not wanting to take a handout job, right? So I think, yeah, there's some sort of arc to this being like a potential father figure, right? Peter no longer has been, and Goblin represents something that Spider-Man could be. He could be much more selfish, and he could take what he wants, and Norman as well, That's a good right? Point, yeah. he's, he's, a, he's a man who built a company on a background of being an expert in science. So it's all these things that, again you know narrowing it right down to that idea of like this movie just saying like who do you want to be who is the right person to be is it harder to be a good person than it is to be a bad person um and, and giving a, peter these options i think that's a poignant question that the movie tries to answer in some way mm -hmm. um, maybe not as overtly as that or maybe with a little a lot more gray area than that but i think the movie kind of speaks to that and then, I mean, another thing I want to talk about is just the way this scene is filmed. I think you can you can really see a lot of work being done to make it more dynamic than an interior apartment dinner scene would be. So some of those are small choices, like a number of times the camera is set up where the action is going to lead to. And when I say action, again, it's not a fist fight. There's no explosions. There's no goblin pumpkins. There's no web. But norman walking towards mary jane to meet her the camera is set up just over kirsten dunt's shoulder her hair and her shoulder are in the frame and he's walking towards it and then when they hear the sound upstairs the camera is set up on the second landing of the staircase and they're looking up towards the camera and where they're going to go again and then i mean like Ramey and uh, and the cinematographer are clearly having fun with the the sort of in peter's bedroom where you have peter come in he takes off his mask in what in the same shot the camera whip pans over to his doorway where Norman and Aunt May and MJ and Harry all walk in 
and it pans back and Spidey's gone. And I mean, in function, clearly like Tobey Maguire just sort of like got down below the frame and the other, the four actors have to act like he's just gone. A very simple, like, you know, one half of a Texas switch. It's kind of, we, um, we just talked about it in our episode on the sixth sense. Almost yeah, the exact same yeah, right. technique, just done in a lot more of a p- slow pace. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then, uh, and then, yeah, then you have like this mission impossible homage where he gets up on the, he's up on the uh, ceiling. Norman is right below him. I love, there's this, I love the framing of the shot where again, like MJ on the, on the floor below, uh, earlier in the sequence, you've got Peter's shoulder and the side of his head. You know, it's a it's a dirty frame, uh, which I think we talked about before. You have some of Tobey Maguire's shoulder and head in the side of the frame, and Norman walks in. And you're looking directly down on him, and you sort of get that direct relationship in terms of where they both are in the space. It it gives you great context and sort of brings them both together um in in a a static shot because otherwise you're basically you're gonna have to pan up and down to show where they are or do some very wide thing that i think wouldn't work and would make the room see a lot bigger and a lot more spacious which i think would undercut the idea that he's really they're really close together and he's trying to hide and then you get your inserts of the cut on his wrist and the blood sort of like dripping down and like classic like literally just the same way mission possible does it where the droplet hits at just the right time. Um, but the only difference being that, you know, Norman is Green Goblin. He has heightened senses. He can hear the droplet hit. Which makes him just more suspicious. But again, by the time he looks up, Peter Parker, or uh, Spider-Man is gone. He's hiding outside the building again. I just want to say the CGI blood droplet I don't love think it's kind of veggie tales esque there's something about its physics that don't work kind of looks like ketchup i like the splash um, i don't like the look of the blood yeah the splash is okay and yeah it kind of looks like ketchup it's also a huge drop it is when they give you sort of like the perspective when norman walks up to it it's a lot yeah for one drop off of the arm it's it's quite disproportionate um i think it works much better if this one instance is just done with a bit more uh, planning or like just better CGI, better graphics, which probably just what we weren't at that phase yet. The one thing that does make me laugh about it is that it it's very reminiscent of Raimi's like evil dead franchise and just his early like gory stuff where it was like really cheap, mm. not good looking blood effects. And it, it just kind of harkened back to that for me, which is just kind of funny, but no, it, it doesn't really hold up. But that's really one of the only special effects or really any kind of effect in this movie that doesn't work for me. Yeah, and that's kind of the thing that now it's charming. I like yeah. I, I don't I have no actual issue with it. I do it's kind of curious with Sam Raimi why they didn't do something practical. I know they wouldn't have been able to get that sort of tracking shot as the blood droplet comes down. But like the droplet hitting the floor, I feel like would be fairly easy to do. They just wouldn't be able to get that well. No, they could arguably get the slow-mo sort of splatter of it, too. So it's it's a little unsure of why they went with CGI, but, you know, so be it. Yeah, you just think high frame rate, like, let's get right. a denser, a, a very dense liquid that would splash up. Or, I don't know, whatever the formula ends up being. I, fe- I really feel like you could have captured that practically, but mm. it was of this time and age where they were really trying to experiment with new ways of doing VFX. Yeah. New I mean, at the other end effect. of the spectrum is you, 
Yeah, the other end of the spectrum there is you have in the modern world, um, Fincher uh, only does CGI blood because he wants to be able to do, what, 40 takes in a row, and he doesn't want to reset blood effects, wipe down people's faces, restart bleeding from a wound. So it's all CGI, and if if I hadn't just told you, I think you probably wouldn't notice. It always looks good. It always works. Like, there's a sequence in Girl with the Dragon Tattoo where... Uh, Daniel Craig is bleeding from a from a head wound. Yeah, and um, Rooney Mara like washes it off with water, and like that is all CGI. It's insane how good it That's looks. That's crazy. Yeah, I do think that he broke that Sorry, trend when uh, when they did Gone Girl, because I heard they had to reset yes. that one scene many times. Yeah, that scene. I think he he made the right call in using some squibs. Yeah, uh, you'll know it if you've seen it, but. Anyway, uh, they go back downstairs, and I love you made a great point here that I did not pick up on, but you got in the notes that when Peter does show up, he comes through the door. He's dressed in his in his like pretty dorky like you know thrift store um, graduation uh, Thanksgiving duds uh, with a tie and whatnot. Uh, they all seem relieved that he's there, and it did kind of it didn't occur to me that like oh yeah like he kind of has the direct connection to everybody there. Yeah, it's him. Obviously, Harry and MJ are together, but like, he's Aunt May's nephew. He's Harry. He's Norman Osborn's favorite little guy. You know, like so. They're clearly like, finally, he's here. We can eat, but also finally, he's here. We can all sort of relate through him. Yeah, it it really like they don't give you and much time before he walks in the door, but there's like a two seconds of like lead time where everyone's just kind of like mm-hmm. silently like sitting there. Hey everyone. And I think that's pretty indicative of what they were trying to show without being like too heavy handed and saying like this was really awkward before Peter got there. Yeah. And then I mean, yeah, you sort of had the fallout at the, the dinner They're They're trying to get ready or they're trying to get going. Norman's going to carve the turkey. Aunt May gives him a slap on the wrist for trying the stuffing before they've said grace. Um, which is a lovely sort of like little character moment where they, they give both of them, I think, two two shots each in a in a shot in reverse. And you, you get like Rosemary Harris has this great little tiny arc where you can tell she's like the way that guy, the look that guy's giving me isn't normal like creep or normal like how dare you slap my hand. Um, there's some there's a there's another level of evil at play. Yeah, she's got her senses are tingling, too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they are. Yeah, um, I, I really like how tense Raimi's able to make this scene. We already talked about kind of the bedroom tension scene where, like, it's very Mission Impossible style, but it's done to such a degree of tension because we know Norman's ability to hear that drop. And, like, all this prior knowledge we have of the characters and their abilities leads to that level of tension there. And then, like you said, this mm-hmm. decision to have not just, like, a small exchange between these two characters. It's like a back and forth, back and forth, and maybe another back and forth between Aunt May and Norman here. And mm-hmm. it's pretty tense for that second. Like you almost, it, and he's got the kn- knives in his hands still. It almost just feels like he's going to lash out or something. Um, obviously, that doesn't yeah. happen. But um, another thing I wanted to point out was just how much Harry had been kind of undercut or like... Uh, belittled by his father throughout the film so far and this day is Mm. seemingly very important to him in terms of introducing his father to mary jane um there's a noteworthy moment that i didn't pick up on before that mary jane's wearing black in this scene unlike the scene before where harry gets mad at her for not wearing black 
when they don't get the yeah. chance to meet his dad. MJ, why didn't you wear the black dress? I just, I wanted to impress my father. He loves black. And uh, this time she happens to be wearing that. So she's mm -hmm. conformed, even though she seemed to be against that initially. Um, and then there's a lot of, like, the reaction is kind of interesting to me because Harry and his, like, Harry goes out to kind of tell his dad, like, not to leave. Norman says, Your mother was beautiful, too. They're all beautiful until they're snarling after your trust fund like a pack of ravening wolves. You're wrong about her, Dad. A word to the not-so-wise about your little girlfriend. Do what you need to with her, then broom her fast. She's just after your money. Yeah, he's like he takes it in a very like shallow direction. Um, and when she when he when Harry walks back in the room, it's like she says, "Thanks for sticking up for me." And mm -hmm. I never quite understood the context of that. Like, is she being facetious? Uh, I mean, yeah, she's being sarcastic. He did kind of try, and his dad was just not cool about it. Yeah, I mean, well, I think it's just that like Norman really gets to put the punctuation on that on that statement with the whole like, you know, do what you will with her and then I mean a gross character moment, but like it, as a turn of phrase broom her is uh pretty fantastic. I've never heard that before Seriously? or since. <laughs> Which I mean, I don't know under what context I'd want to say that about anyone, but like if I had to say like get rid of that person to say broom them, uh I'm I'm in. I I like that like Norman gets a couple great turns of phrase. He also refers to women who are after trust fund money as a pack of ravening wolves. Um, he's fairly well-spoken in that exchange because I think, I don't know, I think you could interpret it a couple different ways, but I think one of it is just like he needs to get out of there because like he's figured out who Spider-Man is. So like how can I just shut down this conversation as fast as possible, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, and I think like it also kind of belies that like how much does Harry actually like MJ and how much is he like, she will impress my father. She is a trophy. She is a, an achievement. Uh, cause she's beautiful. Um, you know, you don't get the impression that he's really in it for her so much as like, he's like, he's like, and they, they explore this more in the, in the following movies as well. But much of Harry's arc is just like, what do other people expect me to be? And how can I fulfill those expectations? Yeah. How can I stop disappointing right? people? Yeah. So, I mean, I think I really, I really like Franco's performance in these two. I think he's got, he's a handsome guy and he plays wimpy, kind of spineless very well. Yeah. He plays like miserable. It's not empathizing. It's not really uh, any kind of positive take on the character. He's just kind of like this miserable, like inadequate character. Mm -hmm. Oh, and a very classic, just like, you know. Peter grew up with no money, with a loving aunt and, and uncle, and Harry grew up with all the money in the world and his father, and he's so much worse off in terms of how he's been socialized and how he treats other people and what he expects of himself, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I really, I agree with all your points, though, about that final interaction with Norman, his father, just kind of how it kind of ticks all those boxes. It's like, you can see that Norman just wants to get out of there. You can see that he's also feeling a bit stung by thinking about women after his trust fund money. Um, you can tell there's like a, something personal in the history there, which I'm, I don't know the lore of the Osborne family, but I'm guessing there's something to that. I don't, I don't know enough. I can't remember the last time I, I, 
I heard in a comic anyone mention uh, Harry's mother. Uh, either way, it's <laughs> it, it's very. I don't sc- think they're terribly concerned. It's very scornful, yeah. and they're just. It seems to imply like a deeper background. All like which is a trait that I typically love about scripts like this, where we don't need to see the flashback. We could just mm-hmm. have this implication that something has happened to this character in the past, and that it affects them today. And uh, yeah. all like this little moment with Harry at the end, just really like. It in contrast with the scene that we're about to get between the two of them, where he basically tells Harry, or he turns Harry against Peter. Parker. Yeah. And how does he feel about her? Well, he's loved her since the fourth grade. He pretends like he doesn't, but there's no one Peter cares for more. Um, it's like yeah. very drastically different tones, and uh, this is where he kind of is rude to Harry, but also where Harry just becomes more even like transfixed with becoming his father. Like in this moment, it seems like I don't know quite the connection between those two ideas, but Harry's mindset changes in this moment because of MJ's reaction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a, it's a cool scene to have picked. It was your, it was your suggestion more so. And I'm glad we, we sort of dug into it because it does, this this scene does a lot of heavy lifting. It sort of sets the stage for the remainder of the movie in terms of Norman knowing who Peter is, but not vice versa. And Peter doesn't know until the very end uh, who the Green Goblin is. And uh, it does a lot of the stuff that I think could be very basic um, uh, exposition and very just functional and things like that. But... um. Uh, it, it, it remains dynamic, it has tension, it has comedy, it has time for all of the characters in it. You know, Aunt May is not just wallpaper, she has stuff to do in this. Um, everyone does. And uh, it's very economical and very well used. I think it's a, it's, a, it's a great scene to look at in a movie full of scenes you could look at, and full of scenes that are on paper way more exciting and way more dynamic. Yeah, on on that level, it just it's indicative and representative of the rest of the movie in the sense that like everything has its place and rationale and pushes the plot forward without really having any characters just kind of by the wayside. It really involves everybody and um, makes them feel like important human characters. Uh, and scenes like this, where you can kind of relate to just the act of the characters gathering for a dinner, are really important for tying a a script like a superhero movie into reality um and we've already talked about the new york setting i think Raimi just brought all these components together to make like a really interesting superhero movie that has other things going for it other than just being action-packed and a visual pleasure to watch yeah i mean absolutely uh there's it's got a lot going for it i think it was a great call um but with that, we can uh, we can leave another dinner scene. We'll leave the dinner table and uh, get into some shout outs. Uh, what do you got, Tay? Uh, I just am going to shout out the original Spidey Senses moment because I just feel that none of the movies have given me the same effective response to Peter's abilities that he gains yeah. as Spider-Man, which is the ability to kind of like feel things uh, like that sixth sense kind of idea, the Spidey Senses. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just not well conveyed in the other movies. And in this, it's so well done um, with the way that everything goes into like slow motion tableau shots. There's like the little fly flying around. There's mm-hmm. the spitball shooting. Um, and then he, it's like all leading up to the moment where Flash tries to punch him. Um, and I think yeah. that this moment is just great. It tells us, it gives us so much information 
um, in this really stylized moment that I, I've just come to adore because of its cheesiness and uh, just nostalgic value, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's having lots of fun. It's another thing where, like, the CGI, you can definitely tell it's of a time, right? Um, but, like, you know, it, it'd be very easy to say, like, maybe we don't need the spitball shot. But, like, it's a great way to get across how slow time is moving and things like that. And he gets a full sense of his environment. And they they set up, like, a sound cue, which is, like, this sort of vibrating metal. It might be, like, even, like, a an application of a string instrument. I'm not really sure how they create the sound, right. but then when they use that sound in future times, your brain is like, Oh, I know what's going on. And we don't have to do the slowdown in the CGI again. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. But they, they set it up well. And then they use that cue uh, to, to a uh, great effect. Yeah. Because you kind of get such visual distinction here. You don't really need to have that same visual come up every time his spidey senses mm-hmm. are in operation. I mean, that said, it's Raimi. He definitely indulges in some more slow mo Spidey senses sequences, especially in the second movie. has some has some very cool ones. Yeah. But, um, no, it's well done. Um, my shout out uh, is something that I love because I really like. I've said versions of this sentence already on this podcast, but I don't. I don't want to be too much of like a grandpa sitting on the porch and uh, yelling at kids about how movies used to be. But don't there you? is nothing like. There is nothing like the final fight in this uh, in this movie. So it's after the bridge sequence. Spidey has saved Mary Jane and the kids. Goblin like wraps a cord around him and throws him into like an abandoned building on the on the bay of the uh, of the river. And the the previous scene is very triumphant. You've got all these Danny Elfman horns. He saves everyone. He doesn't have to make this hero's choice that uh, that the goblin tries to force upon him. And there's all it's all this fanfare. He did it. And then Goblin throws him into this building. All the music drops out. And he just, he kicks his ass. Like, Spider-Man is bleeding. His mask is ripped away. He's, Tommy McGuire's doing that kind of, like, yelping thing when he gets hit. Every time you think he's about to get the upper hand, Goblin just hits him harder. And I remember as a kid, like, you know, I was, you know, 9, 10, 11 seeing this movie. I was, I was shocked, right? Like you start feeling the hits. It goes into slow-mo. And again, there's no music that's like, it's okay. He's working up to it. He'll, he'll, he'll turn the tables. You're like, Green Goblin might kill Spider-Man. I know this movie's called Spider-Man and he's the hero, but like he might die. Right, like also, it, there's or, no I sequel mean, there's the Phenomenal yet. sequence where where the the bomb gets thrown in and it explodes in slow mo, and you see it reflecting in in Tobey Maguire's eye. Just, I mean, this was one of the sequences I I I suggested for our for our discussion. And there's a lot more like action based in production and how it's produced and executed to talk about. But I think even just like the hopelessness of this beatdown is something I I have not seen. Uh, uh, replicated since and I have not felt the stakes like that in a hero villain fight because I think Raimi was aware it's almost impossible to make people really fear for the hero because like could you actually kill Spider-Man in a movie called Spider-Man no you can't He he's going to survive he has to win it would be a, an experimental take to do otherwise so to even instill that little bit of uncertainty in me as a kid and I get you know flashbacks of that when i watch the movie now i think super powerful sequence and it's all in how it's directed well i think it, it kind of harkens back to that point you made earlier about just how vulnerable they were able to make 
Toby Maguire as Peter Parker, just how nerdy and how low they were able to make him. It's like the same thing here. It's like how much can we make it look like he's getting his ass kicked and how much damage can we look like he's taking before the audience is like, oh, he's actually not going to come back in this fight. Um, and yeah. just it gets to that point that it's just at that right level and then we have like our final like conversation. Yeah, and he turns the tables yeah. and it makes it all that much more triumphant that he overcomes. Yeah, and um, all this to say like, this movie has its setups that really tear down the characters in order for the heroic moments to really build them up. And it's like this, it's the ups and downs that this movie has that I find are really missing from a lot of superhero action. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, those are our shout outs. And for recommendations, I'm going to recommend another Sam Raimi movie. It may just be one that you haven't seen. If you're used to Sam Raimi's sillier, zanier, gorier, bloodier, uh, brighter movies this one's called a simple plan it's from 1998 it's got bill paxton and billy bob thornton um what what you know listeners may not know so like sam raimi i believe he lived with the cohen brothers i think they were roommates if he didn't live with them they were they were friends though yeah in they're their early they're film definitely careers. tight yeah and um you can see like you know where they're they they sort of branch off in their styles um, very, very obvious in, in different intentions for the kind of art they want to make. This is very clearly like Raimi is making his Coen Brothers style movie. It's a small story about people with very human problems and all of the problems are compounded because of their human base instincts and desires and how they can't overcome the flaws in their own characters. It's extremely Coen. I also did want to shout out that, uh, did you know there's a, there's a Raising Arizona reference in Spider-Man? I did not know that. So Nick Cage's woodpecker tattoo is uh, is in the alley where Spider-Man saves Mary Jane and they have their inverted kiss. Um, next time you watch it, as they establish the alleyway on the wall, there's woodpecker graffiti and it has a light specifically on it. So it kind of stands out. Hmm. Um, so that's that's Sam Raimi's little nod to his buddies, the Coens. Wow, that's um, that's funny. Yeah, but um, uh, Simple Plan, uh, really solid movie, great performances, um, a, a nice tight little drama. I think I think it, it would have been nice if Raimi had gotten a little bit more critical consideration. I think it definitely could have been an Oscar contender in a, a couple different ways, and uh, it's a great story, so I'd recommend it. I look forward to checking that one out. I have never seen it, so. It's a goodie. Cool. What do you got, Tay? Um, I'm going to go with James Gunn's Super, which is just one of those, like, the only superhero movies I could really feel worthy of recommending that wasn't part of, like, a cinematic universe. Face the wrath of the Crimson Bolt! This movie stars Rain Wilson and L. Page, and it's not what you are probably expecting going in. It's, like, an indie superhero movie directed by the master of this genre, who's James Gunn. Don't steal! Um, and now he's responsible for correcting the course of all of DC films, which is pretty lofty expectations for the guy, but, um, (laughs) you know, I'm sure he'll be, he'll be wrapped up in that for the next 20 years of his life. So, um, if you're looking for old fun, James Gunn stuff, uh, check out super it's from 2010, uh, not my not like a 10 out of 10 by any means for me but i i like this movie and it was unconventional and if you're looking for something superhero-y that's not 
within like the confines of a Marvel cinematic experience, then here's one for you. Yeah, I remember Super being a little shocking to me when I watched it at the time, uh, you know, in light of the other superhero movies I was enjoying. Uh, but it does some very cool stuff. And it, it's a solid recommendation. A nice a nice uh, alternative to uh, to the usual fare in this setting. Yeah. But with that, that's our Spider-Man episode. And it's considerably shorter than it could have been. But I think we dug into some stuff that maybe you don't think of uh, right, right at the top of the ballot when it comes to talking about Spider-Man. Hopefully we weren't just treading uh, the same in. ground that everybody else treads on. But yeah, absolutely. Uh, so tune in in a couple weeks. We'll talk about whatever movie you guys picked on Instagram. You can find us on Instagram at SSC pod. Uh, that's where we do our voting for our episode picks. That's where we do a weekly roundup and everyone just sort of shares what they've been watching. Uh, it's a good hang. And you can email us at single serving cinema at gmail.com. We actually got an email recently, Tay. I forgot to talk to you about it. And we'll talk about it on the next episode. They had a suggestion for a month theme. It's not a bad one. I'm looking forward to hearing it. Yeah. But uh, with that, uh, you know how it goes. With uh, great power comes great responsibility. So, uh, you know, go, go do some good. It's not really the same with that level of hesitation in your tone. No, that's how Uncle Ben said it. He wasn't <laughs> sure. He wasn't sure how to finish his podcast episode, so he just rattled something off. Oh, I get it. That's how you're ending it. Yeah.